Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to start in verse number 10. Last week we got through those verses where God was giving Joshua instructions and encouragement and telling him to be strong and courageous. And so now we've reached the point where he is going to be passing on those instructions to to the remainder of the people. But let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for another opportunity to open your word. We ask for wisdom. We ask for uh, special insight that you will allow us to uh, see the true meaning of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in, in verse number 10, again, God has given Joshua the instructions to take the land, and so Joshua begins to get busy. And, uh, you know, as we've seen many times, Joshua 5.15 was an example where God, Joshua was given a command, and the Bible says, and he did so. So he is unwavering in his obedience. He provides the leadership that he is supposed to. And so here in verse 10 it says, Then Joshua commanded the officers, officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And so here we have the hierarchy. Joshua is receiving the commands from the Lord. Then Joshua passes those commands on to the officers who are then supposed to to pass on those commands to the people. And hierarchy is essential in government. Uh, we are told in, in the New Testament, in Hebrews 13, 17, to submit to those that have the rule over us. It's not a sign of weakness to submit to authority or to submit to those that are over us. I, I know I've talked to a couple of people who, who have said to me, I'm self-employed because I can't take orders from anybody. And that's not, a, that's not a strength. That's not a good thing. That's not something that uh, you should be pleased with. We have to be willing to, again, it's a sign of maturity and humility to be able to submit to those that have the rule over us. Verse number 11, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land. Food is just a necessity of life. It's, it's, it's just a reality. We have to have it. I was reminded of that on Monday. I, I left here Sunday, last Sunday, and I went to the airport. I was supposed to fly to Houston. Well, my flight was delayed, and so I ended up not getting into Houston till almost midnight. And so then I got up and rushed to the office, and, and then they didn't break for lunch till 1 o'clock. And so it, it's, I started realizing about around noon that I had been about 24 hours without food, and I was having trouble concentrating. And I thought, this, here we are. Food is, is a reality. There's... We can't live without it. Adolf Hitler obviously understood that. Uh, that was his solution for weakening the resistance of the Jews, and it worked effectively. He deprived them of, of any energy that they had, and they were not able to put up much resistance. And then in verse 12, it says, And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to half the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side, Jordan, but ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord 
have given your brethren rest as he hath given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side Jordan toward the sun rising. So, Joshua tells the people to remember the instructions that Moses had commanded them. Now, according to verse 13, who gave the two and a half tribes their land? The Lord. And according to verse 15, at the end of the verse, who gave the two and a half tribes their land? Moses. And there are many verses in the preceding books, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and it's stated many times both ways. So, don't be, you know, we shouldn't be confused by that. Sometimes it says Moses gave them the land. Sometimes it says the Lord gave them the land. Both are true. Now, it was obviously, you know, Joshua was telling them to remember the instructions that Moses had given them. Moses had given them the land conditionally. They were given the land on the condition that they kept certain requirements that Moses had given them. So, I think it'll be very beneficial for us to go back to Numbers chapter 32 and take a look at the incident in which they were given the land. So, let's go back to Numbers chapter 32. And we are going to come back to the book of Joshua, and we're also going to, a couple of times, end up in the 22nd and 24th chapters of Joshua. So, um, you know, if you want to be able to turn back and forth from Numbers to to the book of Joshua. But Numbers chapter 32 is a very... There's a lot of disagreement about the interpretation of Numbers chapter 32. There's a lot of uh, controversy and debate about whether or not these two and a half tribes should have been given land on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, some, many people have, I don't think it's an, a stretch to say that not just some, but many people have labeled the, the two and a half tribes compromisers and schemers for having accepted land on the, the east side of the Jordan River and not gone to the west into the land of Canaan like the other tribes end up eventually doing. Um, as I was looking around on the internet, I found I ran across one man's sermon called Living on the Wrong Side of the Cross. And I think there were a lot of sermons like that. And so what I, what I, what I hope to do in, in looking at in chapter 32 is to see whether or not those criticisms are justified. If these two and a half tribes were indeed guilty of doing something that was dishonoring to the Lord. So we're going to, again, look at chapter 32, most of the chapter here. Let's start with the first five verses. It says, now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had very great, had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Debon and Jazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Elielah and Shebam and Nebo and Beon, 
Even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. So I gave you a, hopefully every one of you have a copy of of a map. It's not very good quality. It's black and white, but really we just want to get the gist of it. You can see there in the, the middle of it, the Jordan River. And so it, it highlights the, the area on the right, the area on the east side of the river, which is the land that was given to the two and a half tribes. Now, if you go to Google and you type in map of the 12 tribes of Israel, it'll come up immediately with about 12 different versions of it. So you, you probably have one in your Bible that's slightly different. Um, and I just chose that one because, again, the point is just to draw attention to the fact that, you know, they were given land on the east side of of the Jordan River. Now, Gad and Reuben make the request. It's interesting to note that Manasseh, half the tribe of Manasseh, is given land later on the east side of the Jordan River, but there's never any, any record in Scripture that they ever asked for it. They were simply given it. Gad and Reuben are the ones that make the request. And right away, um, people see that they, they had a lot of cattle, and so they immediately conclude that they're materialistic, they're greedy, they have the wrong motives. Worthy consideration, 1 John 2.16, is this the lust of the eyes? Philippians 2.21, is this an example where all seek their own, not the things which are the Lord's? Those are good questions. I don't see that their requesting the land is, uh, I, I can't draw the conclusion that they're requesting the land because they're scared to go onto the, the other side of the Jordan River. I take it at face value. They see that the land is good for cattle. If material gain was the only thing that mattered to them, then yes, this request could be condemned. But to make that claim, we have to establish that their request interfered with their relationship with the Lord. And we have to be very careful when assigning motives. We can't just go condemning people because of their abundance if their abundance doesn't hinder their relationship with the Lord. They had done well. They had a lot of cattle. They had brought those cattle out of Egypt and throughout the last 40 years had seen them multiply. We can't look at someone that has a lot of money and say all they care about is money. You just can't make that. You can't make that assumption. You'd be disqualifying many people in the Bible who had a lot of money, who were commended. Abraham, Joseph, Barnabas. So you just can't jump to those conclusions. But a lot of people do jump to those conclusions. They just look at verse 1 and they say these were a materialistic, greedy bunch of people. Another argument is that these people are just like Lot. Lot looked out over the plains east of the Jordan River and uh, lusted after it with his eyes, and he wanted that same land for his cattle. But again, you've got to make sure you're comparing apples to apples. I think there are a lot of differences here. Genesis, we don't have time to turn there, but Genesis 13.10 tells us, Lot was content to dwell among the people of Sodom. These, these two and a half tribes, or at least these two tribes that are making the request, they're not going to be content to dwell with the Amorites. They've driven them out. 
or at least conquered their land. Uh, Numbers 32 makes it clear at the end of this chapter that when they are given permission to take the land, they change the names of the cities, probably to distance themselves from the idolatrous practices of those that had already been there. Lot didn't seek to do any such thing. There's there's just no indication that, that Lot... You know, wasn't content to, you know, he was content to dwell among the people there. So, uh, these two and a half tribes, they don't ever want, there's, I don't see any indication that they ever want to be known separately from the other nine and a half tribes. This wasn't a request to, you know, set themselves apart or somehow distance themselves from their brothers. So, so again, I'm not sure that that's a valid comparison to automatically assign them the, you know, the same motives or the same circumstances the lot was under. Another argument is that they're a long way from the altar, the mandatory place of worship in Shiloh. It's a valid concern. I don't think people ought to live so far away from a good church that they can't get there, that it interferes with their church attendance. But if you look at the map, the people in southern Judah would have been just as far away from Shiloh as the people in those two and a half tribes. The people in those two northern tribes would have been further away than these two and a half tribes. I mean, granted, there's a river between them, but that's not insurmountable. Dan, the tribe of Dan, later migrated even further north than the two tribes that are at the top of that map. So again, if the only argument is their geographic location, well, then there were others that were further away than they were. Another argument is that they eventually fell into this sin or that sin. All the twelve tribes fell into sin. They all fell into a lot of grievous sin. And, you know, unless you can specifically link their geographic location with them having fallen into that sin, I, I don't know that that's a valid, valid argument either. So, so again, there's a lot of arguments um, that people make to immediately question their motives and assign improper motives to them, but... As I began to evaluate a lot of those, I just didn't think that they really held up under the weight of Scripture. Now let's look at verses 6 through six through 15. And actually, um, you know, there's a lot of Bible commentators who can't imagine any Israelite settling for anything less than you know, the exact fulfillment of the promises that had been made to Abraham 400 years earlier. Everybody, you know, again, it's kind of going back to the lesson we had two weeks ago, but everybody seemed to have known that the, the promised land, Canaan, was the land that was west of the Jordan River. And I think that's true. I think that the original promise to Abraham didn't include the land that these two and a half tribes are asking for. Which is really the whole point of the chapter. That's why they're asking for it. Because they understand that it's, it wasn't part of the original promise. Is there any harm in asking? You know, in, in, in our world today, we use a common expression. We say, think outside the box. That doesn't necessarily mean you're thinking out of bounds or thinking about doing something illegal or immoral. That doesn't necessarily mean those things. So, number verse number two, before we get to, to, to verse six, uh, they're not trying to make a secret deal. 
They're not trying to do this underhandedly or behind anyone's back. They come to Moses and Eliezer and all the leaders. They're, they're doing this very openly. Verses 3 and 4, they observe that the Lord has cleared the land of its inhabitants. Notice verse 4, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. They're looking for God's hand in the resistance of the Amorites and the Moabites. And so, verse 5, they make the request. Now, granted, in verse 5, this is a little bit alarming. Bring us not over Jordan. Now, some people would interpret that and say, you know, they, is that they're saying they don't want to go at all? You know, I mean, they, they, don't, they don't throw it right out there at the very beginning. They don't make it clear that they're willing to go over and assist in the battle. So, you know, you're, there's a little bit of doubt there. You know, you're kind of left to wonder whether or not they're, you know, they're wanting to go at all or whether or not they're just wanting to leave their, their families behind and eventually return to them. You know, I don't, I, I don't, you know, just from these verses, I'm not sure that we can be sure what exactly their intentions were, whether or not they were trying to get out of the fight. But I think that will become hopefully a little bit clearer as we move, move on. Verses 6 through 15. And Moses said unto the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war, and shall ye sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them? Thus did your fathers when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up unto the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled the same time, and he swears, saying, Surely none of them, none of the men that came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. And behold, ye are risen up in your father's stead an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord toward Israel. For if ye turn away from after him, he will yet again leave them in the wilderness, and ye shall destroy all this people. So needless to say, Moses wasn't too happy. <laughs> he was very livid. He was very, I think he was very upset. Moses wanted to go, but he couldn't. They get to go, and, and they don't want to. That might have been a little bit of maybe what got under Moses' skin. Verse 7, Moses says, you're going to cause discouragement and disunity throughout the camp. The others are going to be disheartened because there are going to be fewer warriors to engage the enemy. And Moses says, I've seen this before. You know, that's, that's his argument. The ten evil spies returned from the land and caused a lot of trouble. It caused a lot of heartache. And Moses reminds them of just how severe God's judgment was on that whole situation. That whole generation had to die. And, you know, so Moses is, is eventually saying, I can't believe what I'm hearing. You don't want to go either? Are you trying to bring the same judgment upon this generation that was upon that generation? Are we going to have to go through that all over again? Is another 38 years going to have to go by before all of the people get to enter, get to cross the Jordan River? And Moses is, is very concerned about unity. 
Notice the last three words there, verse 15. All this people. He knows that, you know, and it's a common theme throughout the book of Joshua, that many times the, the actions or the sins of one person or a few affect the entire nation. They can bring God's wrath and judgment on an entire nation. So, you know, Moses, he just can't believe it. He says, we've waited 38 years for this. Are you guys out of your mind? You don't want to go into the promised land? But they don't. They're content. They, I mean, you know, they're willing to go help fight, but they're, they think this, this land is a great land. And they, they think that God has provided it for them. Verses 16 through 19. And they came near unto him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our cattle and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will go ready armed before the, the children of Israel until we have brought them unto their place, and our little ones shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return unto our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on yonder side Jordan or forward because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side Jordan eastward. So they say to Moses, here's our proposal. We'll make four promises. We'll lead the way. That doesn't sound like somebody trying to get out of battle. We'll leave our families behind so that we can be totally devoted to war. We'll fight till the very end. And we will not take possession of any land on the west side of the Jordan River. We're not trying to double dip, is really what they're saying. So the question again, I mean, did they intend all along to go over and fight? Or are they just now agreeing to, now that they see how mad and angry Moses is? Because again, in verse 5, they said, let us not go over Jordan. You know, that was a little vague. Didn't necessarily clarify whether or not they were intending to get out of the fight. But clearly here, they've, they've said, hey, we're, we're in this thing. And Matthew Henry gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, you know, help for help. They realized that it was all 12 tribes that conquered the, the groups, the Amorites and the Moabites that were on the east side of the Jordan River. It's only right that all 12 tribes conquer all of the land that is remaining on the west side of the river. So, but, you know, certainly now they've made their point clear. Um, you know, whether or not they had every intention from the beginning of going over and fighting, you know, again, maybe there's some question there, but, but clearly they, they've agreed that they are, you know, they're going to, they're going to see this thing through. Whether or not they anticipated that this was going to be a seven year campaign, I don't know, but, um, you know, they, they're, They've pledged their allegiance. Verses 20 through 24, And Moses said unto them, If you will do this thing, if you will go armed before the Lord to war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord until he hath driven out his enemies from before him, and the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterward ye shall return and be guiltless before the Lord, and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build you, build you cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do that which hath proceeded out of your mouth. So Moses says, go ahead with your plans, but let there be no doubt. If you fail to keep your word, the consequences are going to be severe. And of course, in verse 23, where it says, where it mentions sin. What's the sin? 
sin is doing nothing. The sin is failing to keep their word. That's the sin. That's the sin that's being referred to. We have an epidemic of broken promises in our world today. I mean, I'm astonished after politicians break promises that there's a person left on the planet would believe a word that they have to say, but for some reason people do. But we'll see later on, um, you know, they, they kept these promises. So even if it's not explicitly stated that Moses sought the Lord. I mean, I think a lot of people would be more comfortable if there was a verse that said Moses went off to the side and prayed about this. We don't have that. But I think that it's clear that Moses and the Lord, Moses was speaking on behalf of the Lord. Maybe not necessarily clear in Numbers chapter 32, although I think we see evidence of that, but clear in other places in Scripture. But in verse 22 there, Moses says, and the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterward ye shall return and be guiltless before the Lord. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's saying the Lord, God isn't going to hold a grudge. It's not like, you know, okay, we're agreeing to this, you're going to get the land, but God's really going to hold a grudge and He's always going to be upset. That That's not supported. Um, if we were to go back to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 15, Joshua says, Keep your word, but when you return, enjoy the land. That's what he says there in verse 15. Enjoy the land. That doesn't sound like God's holding a grudge to to expect them to enjoy the land. I think another way of stating this, Moses says you will be guiltless before the Lord. Moses says you will not have a cloud hanging over your head. And yet that's what a lot of people have done till this very day. They attribute all kinds of improper motives to them and and have a cloud hanging over their head. Verses 25 through 27, And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spake unto Moses, saying, Thy servants will do as my Lord commandeth. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our cattle shall be there in the cities of Gilead, but thy servants will pass over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle. As my Lord saith. So say, yes, we're going to do all that you command. Turn to Joshua chapter 22. We're going to come back to Numbers 32, though, if you can hold your place there. But Joshua chapter 22, I just think it's beneficial for us to see that they really did this. Joshua chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. Okay, you can go back to Numbers. So, you know, Joshua certainly believes they fulfilled their pledge in its entirety. He says there in, in those three verses in Joshua 22, they were, they were not only obedient to him, they were obedient to Moses, and ultimately they were also obedient to the Lord. 
verses 28 through 33 of Numbers 32. So concerning them, Moses commanded Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said unto them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben will pass with you over Jordan, every man armed to battle before the Lord, and the land shall be subdued before you, then ye shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said unto thy servants, so will we do. We will pass over arm before the Lord into the land of Canaan, that the possession of our inheritance on this side Jordan may be ours. And Moses gave unto them, even to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, and unto the half the tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with the, with the cities thereof in the coasts, even the cities of the country round about. So Moses makes sure that Eleazar and Joshua know all the details of this agreement to make sure that it can be enforced later. And notice in verses 31 and 32 that the, these two tribes that are asking, that are making this request, they believe that Moses received these instructions from the Lord. Notice in verse 31, as the Lord hath said unto thy servants, so will we do. So they're not just saying, okay, we're, we're, we're making, we're in agreement with Moses. They're also understanding that Moses was speaking on behalf of the Lord. This was, this was God's plan. You know, again, it's interesting that in verse 33, this is the first mention of Manasseh. And, and again, there's never any record that he asks for any land on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, maybe Moses thought, okay, this isn't a bad idea. They were instrumental in some of the attacks and the defeating of the Amorites on this side of the Jordan. Maybe it makes sense that I give some of the land to them also. They weren't the largest tribe by, according to the census in Numbers chapter 26, unless you couple them with the tribe of Ephraim. Um, but for whatever reason, Moses chooses to include them in this, in this grant of land. In Numbers 30, we don't have to turn there, but in Numbers 34, 13 through 14, the, in the description of the borders of the land, this land now that is given to these two and a half tribes is included in that description. So, again, makes it clear that it was obviously incorporated into the, you know, the new revised version of the promised land. Um, Again, this, this land wasn't part of the original promise given to Abraham. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. I just, I think it's beneficial for us to see this one verse. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Of course, this is the end of Moses' life. Verse number 4. Moses is on the east side of the Jordan River. He's up on Mount Nebo. He's looking out across the Jordan River, looking out west to the Promised Land. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. This is the land. The land that he's looking at over across the Jordan River. So, 
the land given to the two and a half tribes, it wasn't part of the original promise. But it is uh, part of God's plan now. God has changed His plan. He hasn't scaled back His plan. His promise is not being, His promise to Abraham is not being fulfilled any less than the original promise. It's being fulfilled more so than the original promise. Don't, don't many of us experience that in our lives? I mean, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, to the glory of God, He is able to do abundantly, exceedingly, above all that we ask or think. I mean, that's what He's doing here. He's, he's changing His plan, but not for the worse, for the better. He's adding land to them. Genesis 15:16. God said that Abraham's descendants were not going to be able to possess the land because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Now, I don't know if you have the original, the original map that I had passed out two weeks ago, but uh, I had passed this one out here where it just showed the division of the land. Well, the Amorites are on both the west side of the Jordan River and the east side. So actually, by God having driven out the Amorites and conquered their land and taken their land, now He has even more so fulfilled His promise to, to fulfill the prophecy to Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. It's full now. They've been destroyed on both sides of the river. So having included this land in that promise is even a greater fulfillment of prophecy, a greater fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And we can ask ourselves the question, why did God have them go up through that land? Wasn't there a shorter route? The wilderness that they had wandered in was, they could have gone up through the south. But God took them around the Dead Sea and had them go up through on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, again, if it's not clear in Numbers chapter 32, turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. This makes it clear that it was part of God's plan. Just so we know God speaking, look at verse 2. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. And then this is his farewell address. We get to verse 8. It says, And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side Jordan. And they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand that ye might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. So it was God's plan for this to happen. So I, I don't see that the the criticism of Gad and Reuben is justified. It seems to me they were perceptive about what God was doing. It seems to me they were ahead of Moses. Moses' concern was very legitimate. I mean, he certainly didn't want a repeat of what happened 38 years ago. But ultimately, they were not granted their request with strings attached. I mean, you know, in the sense that the land was tainted and somehow they were going to be considered inferior. And that's not the case. And But there's a lot of 
you know, again, there's a lot of, you know, discussion. They were compromisers. They were schemers. I don't think so. They were seeing what the Lord was doing. I mean, this God's not acquiescing. Well, okay, if I must. It was part of His plan all along. That's why He brought them up through that land. They were merely seeing God's hand in their circumstances. Another thing that I think is very interesting is that a lot of the very same commentators who suggest that the Promised Land included every square mile from the Nile River to the entire stretch of the Euphrates River, they're also the same ones that criticize these two and a half tribes for taking land on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, it seems to me you can't have it both ways. I mean, you know, if you're going to make the argument that they were supposed to have all the land, well, then you would say, well, yeah, they were just taking what was supposed to be theirs. You know, that, that, that I don't quite get that argument. So did they settle for less than the best? Depends on who you ask. Caleb, he didn't want any part of it. I mean, he had his eyes set on Judah, Hebron, the land that he had saw when he was on the, the spy mission. Joshua, he had his land that he was wanting. But does that mean that they were wrong? Using the eye of the beholder. And when I was down in Houston, those people love it down there. I wouldn't want to live in Houston. They love it down there. They said, this is all we know. We've grown up here. I understand that. If I grew up there, I'd probably, I'd probably love it. I'd probably like to be there. But I, and I didn't grow up there. So in my mind, I mean, as I study the Scriptures, it seems to me that they had God's approval and blessing. I mean, again, Joshua 24.8, this was, this was God's plan that this happened. That He enlarged their borders. Numbers 30, again, Numbers 32.22, they shall be guiltless before the Lord. Joshua 1.13, God gave them the land. Joshua 1.15, they were to return and enjoy the land. Joshua 24.8, it was God's plan all along. Who, who put it within the heart of the Amorites and the Moabites to put up resistance? I mean, we could go back and read Numbers chapter 21. Moses made it abundantly clear all we want to do is pass through. We're not even going to let our cattle graze. We're not going to hurt your land. We're not going to bother your women and your children. We're not going to do anything. All we want to do is pass through. And the Amorites said, not a chance. And put up resistance and went to war. And God saw that they were crushed. It wasn't Moses' idea. It was part of God's plan that this happened. Now, back to Joshua chapter 1. In verse number 14, and again, I think this is what motivates a lot of the uh, it's understandable why Moses was so upset. He, he is concerned about the unity. You know, he was concerned about the unity when they made this request. He was wanting to make sure there wasn't going to be a defection that was going to become contagious. You know, if two tribes were allowed to, to Take land. Well, then you know maybe a lot of other tribes will say, "Well, we don't we don't want land over there either." That was you know really a lot of Moses' concern. Unity is a great concern among God's people. It's very important that we're unified. I mean, I, you know, we don't want to 
I mean, you know, we don't all have to eat the same thing and wear the same thing. I mean, that, you know, not that silliness, but it's important that we all are wanting to honor, all wanting to honor and please the Lord. We shouldn't seek as Christians to do things that are going to be discouraging to other Christians. We're told in the New Testament to make sure that we take into consideration our brothers and sisters regarding our behavior. So, these two and a half tribes, they wholeheartedly assured Moses, we're not doing that. We're not trying to cause, we're not trying to sow discord. We're not trying to cause division. We're not trying to dishearten everyone. And so they were very, they were very much concerned about that. Unity is very important. When I, when I had dinner with some, some folks down in Houston, they said, we're, we're going to succeed, secede from the union. Okay. Really? Maybe. I don't know. But, yeah. But unity is very important. What's that? I didn't hear you. Oh. Probably have to get in line. Verse number 15. Uh, Until the Lord have given your brethren rest, as he hath given you, and they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. In other words, you know, nobody can rest till everybody can rest. And again, we we see here in verse 15, it says, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you. So again, you know, it's a silly argument. Did, did Moses give them the land? Did the Lord give them the land? They both gave them the land. I mean, there's there's multitude of verses where, you know, sometimes it says Moses gave them land. Sometimes it says the Lord gave them land. You know, you could make it a trick question on a test. Who gave them the land? Both of them did. But, you know, the point is Moses didn't act independently of God. I think I just think when you when you look at all the evidence, I think that's clear. In verse 16, they answered Joshua saying, all that thou commandest us, we will do and whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. So the same way that they had promised Moses that they were going to fulfill their word. Now they're telling Joshua the same thing. We're going to keep our promise. Even though Moses is now dead, they know that, you know, the promise really wasn't to Moses, to, to Moses. It was to the Lord. Verse 17, according as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Now, they really didn't obey Moses to the extent that they're probably claiming here. Now, according as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, I mean, if you look at the group collectively, there was a lot of rebellion and resistance during the 40 years of wandering, which prompted Moses to strike the rock twice. But nevertheless, the, the point is, is that in the same way that we were, you know, that we recognize Moses as our leader and we're going to be loyal to him, we're going to, we're going to also recognize Joshua as our leader and we're going to be faithful and obedient to him also. And when it, when it says, only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses, there's, there's kind of two ways that, 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 that that's interpreted. I mean, one is it's simply a, a, their blessing, but uh, others have looked at that and said, that's actually they're telling Joshua that they're only going to obey him to the extent that they believe he's being obedient to the Lord. And if that's the case, that's admirable. It's not, it's not blind obedience. They're, they're not saying, Joshua, we're going to do whatever you tell us, even if it's dishonoring to the Lord. I mean, neither should any of us. You know, We don't just 
go along with, you know, whatever the pastor and, pastor and deacons say if, if, in fact, it's, it's going to be dishonoring to the Lord. You know, we just can't be yes men. We don't just drink the Kool-Aid, you know, as Jim Jones hands it out. I mean, that's, you can't do that. It's spiritual suicide. And so that might be what they're saying here is that they're going to, they're going to wholeheartedly support Joshua to the extent that he was within the Lord's will. And then verse number 18. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death, only be strong and of a good courage. They make a law that whoever won't obey will be put to death. Severe punishments are necessary during times of war. A lot of people see this as another example of Joshua being a type of Christ. They're saying if you're not going to submit to Joshua, you're going to be put to death. Well, ultimately, those who don't submit to the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be put to death. Eternal death. I mean, again, submission is not a weakness. It's a sign of maturity and humility. And then, you know, really the, the context of the whole verse, I mean, if we put it in, in today's vernacular, it's kind of like they're saying, you know, we got your back. We're going to make sure that we're all... You know, that we're all wholeheartedly behind you. You know, you can be strong and of a good courage. You can be confident that you have our, our allegiance. You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna put up the, the we're not gonna cause the kind of rebellion that took place during the, the previous 40 years that ended up in, in so much turmoil. Next week we'll get into chapter two. Any thoughts on today's Glenn? Yeah, there's, there's a, you know, if you look back at the census in Numbers chapter 26, there were 100,000 soldiers, men, ready to go to war from those two and a half, well, just from the two tribes. And we actually have recorded in Scripture that they sent 40,000. So the idea is that they must have left 60,000 behind to do, they probably anticipated that this was going to be a seven-year battle, and so they knew they were going to have to not only leave some behind for protection, but also to... Plow the fields, grow the crops. So, yeah, I mean, it would have been risky if they had literally taken all 100,000 able-bodied men and sent them across. But it seems clear that, that less than half of the men actually had to go and participate. Anyone else? Steve? Right, chapter 22. Right, and that, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to, that I thought it was worthwhile to go back and look at chapter 32 because there are a couple of incidents that take place throughout the book of Joshua that really kind of draw attention to the fact that these two and a half tribes are in some ways, you know, there's a distinction between them and the nine and a half tribes and sometimes there's a little bit of misunderstanding and there's a little, there's a little bit of friction. So, um, but I, you know, for my own benefit, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to try to resolve whether or not they were doing something that was disobedient and dishonoring to the Lord. And, and I, you know, based on the study that I've done, my conclusion is that they didn't. This was God's plan. And I, I, I think that that's, I think if you look at all the, the weight of Scripture, I think that that's clear. It was a little, it was obviously a little bit uh, unconventional and certainly uh, raised a few hairs on Moses' neck, but... Uh, um, you know, it, it, 
you know, in hindsight now, it seems that they were they were a little bit ahead of Moses on this in seeing the seeing the Lord's hand in it. Anyone else? All right. Well, you're dismissed.